0: What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran and you're listening to Deep Trouble. Trouble magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery, Tama, Fox Galleries, Melbourne, Manningham Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support.
1: We're back in the studios of Main FM. I'm Steve Charman and I'm with Dr Mark Halloran. It's time for another series of Deep Trouble. Our third series and we've got some great guests coming up. But Mark, Mark's with me. How are you and how have you been managing
0: your personal lockdown? I've been fine, I think. I've been working from home since uh, late March, working with clients on the telephone and through telehealth. So I'm adapting.
1: Hmm. Well, if listeners hear a slight difference to how we normally sound, it's because we're using Zoom today to communicate like a billion other people in the world. Well, as we're starting a third series, I think it might be a good opportunity just to remind our listeners about the Deep Trouble Project. I want to explain where you and the editor of Trouble Magazine, Steve Proposh, got the idea of extending the magazine into a podcast and a radio show.
0: Well, we originally thought that we wanted to do a podcast that was based around psychotherapy, so interviewing guests about their personal lives, but it eventually evolved into a conversation about philosophy, science, and sociological issues. And the idea was that we could have a conversation that might change the way that people think about themselves and think about the world. You can hear
1: the earlier seasons of Deep Trouble and access them via the Trouble Magazine website. Well, let's go to the subject of the first episode, the first interview, as Professor Peter Doherty. And what an appropriate time to be talking to Peter Doherty. Mark, tell us a bit about him and his work.
0: Peter Doherty shared the 1996 Nobel Prize for Medicine with his colleague, Ralph Zinkelnagel, for discoveries around transplantation and killer T-cell mediated immunity. And this has led to an increase in understanding and has uh, translated into new cancer treatments. And he was an Australian of the Year in 1997. Readers of The Australian would note a very recent article
1: that looks at Peter Doherty and the Peter Doherty Institute, because they're at the forefront of research into a possible vaccine and other issues. It highlights some of the different opinions about how to tackle the coronavirus epidemic around the world. A number of experts have differing opinions about how countries should tackle the epidemic. What do you think, Mark?
0: Well, I think to some extent, the purpose of experts is to differ. But I think we have to keep in mind that we're approaching 100,000 deaths in America. And the idea of herd immunity, which is often touted, none of the countries that are considered to be COVID elite are looking at herd immunity. If you're going to talk about herd immunity, Mark, you better explain what it is. So herd immunity is basically that probably 60% of the population contracts the disease, recovers from the disease, and that confers protection to the rest of the population. Now, this is an issue
1: that we could talk a lot about, but we're not going to do that. We're actually going to play the interview for our listeners and let them decide. We'll come back and have a chat afterwards. So let's have a listen to it. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Peter Doherty.
0: I was interested in some of your work in relation to understanding the complexities of T-cell mediated immunity and memory, and how this can inform developing vaccines for pandemics like COVID-19. This
2: is what my research career has been about in the immunology sense, so I've done a lot of other things. These are what are called the killer T-cells. They're a class of white blood cells that go around the body and the blood and when we get exposed to a stimulus they respond very very specifically to that stimulus and multiply and multiply and multiply and and do the job of bumping off cells that are dangerous so they can bump off virus infected cells which is really important because the way viruses grow is to get into our cells and use our cells as factories so part of the recovery process from a virus infection is to kill those factories and that's what the killer t-cells do but they also play a part in keeping cancer in control. And we've known for years, in fact, that these cells are often sitting in tumours and doing nothing. And a friend of mine called Jim Allison worked out that you could wake them up again, so they worked and could bump off the tumour. And that's the Nobel Prize from a couple of years back, uh, or a year or so back, to Allison and Honjo, where they worked out how to turn those killer cells back on and get rid of cancers like melanoma. So that's been the main clinical result. But otherwise, consciousness of what we did is, and what we did actually conceptually in terms of thinking about the immune system was change the whole thinking about what we call the cell-mediated side, opposite from the antibody side, which is the main part when it comes to vaccine protection.
0: I read a review article that you're a co-author on which looked at the understanding that we've gleaned from the Spanish influenza of 1918. We should say the Spanish influenza killed approximately 50 million people. It was one of the most fatal events that the human race has seen in in human history. And you said in The Australian that SARS-CoV-2 was equally infectious and fatal. As a counterpoint to that, I note a recent interview with Professor Michael Levitt, who's also a Nobel laureate at Stanford University, who has said that the lockdowns in countries like Australia were a mistake and that, in fact, he didn't feel that the disease was as deadly, well, certainly deadly to older people, a certain older demographic, but that the economic detriment would be greater than the disease itself. And I just wondered what your thoughts were about that.
2: Yes, firstly, the statement that COVID-19 is as bad as the Spanish flu. I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding between me and the journalists there. I might have said it's spreading like Spanish flu, but I've never thought it's as bad as Spanish flu. And the reason for that is Spanish flu killed a lot of fit young adults. This one doesn't. It kills some, but not many. So I don't think it's as bad as the Spanish flu. We won't know what the eventual death totals are or what the long-term health consequences are for those who get infected and recovered for some considerable time. We really, it's just got to work its way through. I'd always been a bit embarrassed by the fact that we said, you know, 40 to 100 million people died of the Spanish flu and the fact we haven't had a better figure, but I'm wondering Mm -hmm. whether we'll get a better figure out of COVID-19. I mean, some jurisdictions are actually trying to suppress the numbers including some American states.
0: It seems as though you support the idea of the lockdown as a really good, pragmatic way of limiting spread and social distancing, and that was at odds with someone like Professor Michael Levitt. It should be noted, though, that Michael Levitt is not an epidemiologist.
2: Well, I'm not an epidemiologist either, but I have been a bit involved in this area for years. But but Michael Levitt said that early on. I'm not sure he's still saying it. They've had 70,000 deaths in the United States. And I think they'll be lucky to finish with less than a quarter of a million to half a million. So he might have changed his mind somewhere along the line. But it was always a legitimate argument to say, OK, this is mainly killing old people and people who aren't very fit. Mm. And so if you're a real strict Darwinian, you might say, well, you know, let him go. And that's an argument. The British tried to protect the old people at the beginning and tried to lock them away. That worked very badly and they've had a lot of infection. Proportionally, they've had more deaths than the United States, but it really got going a bit faster there than in the US at a big level. Mm. So it's always been a legitimate argument. And personally, as an older person, I'm grateful to the Australian government and to the Australian people for going along with the lockdown, because what that did is it allowed us to put in place a lot more testing capacity so we can track down if we get spot fires after we relax the guidelines, as we are doing. And it will also allow us to get much more hospital equipment and beds and trained personnel in place. So if someone gets this disease now, we hopefully won't get into the position that Northern Italy got into, that people over 65 were simply triaged, as far as ventilators was concerned, and essentially left to die without help.
0: I believe historically as well that countries that, when pandemics have broken out, I think 1957, 1968, obviously 2009, that the countries that locked down early actually recovered more quickly economically as well. So, um,
2: but compared with this, these were minor events. I mean, mm. this is a major event, which, in economic terms, is certainly in many ways comparable to 1918. And it was true in 1918, actually, that the American jurisdictions, which locked down more effectively, did a lot better. Philadelphia, for instance, where I lived for a number of years, didn't and had very high death rates. And so locking down does work. I mean, we've seen that it works, but we can't stay locked down forever for obvious reasons. And I think what's being done now is, is basically what's rational. And we'll see how it goes. I mean, we don't know how it will go. We're all hoping we can keep this as kind of spot fires that we just damp down. If that works, I think we'll be in good shape. It may be we're better off than we think we are, and we won't see a lot of flare-ups. But my suspicion is, once people start crowding together again, particularly in pubs and bars and nightclubs and places where you kind of drop your guard, we'll see we'll see flare-ups. But we want to keep them under control, and I think the treasurer is just being saying that.
0: It runs counter, Professor Levitt's original idea was, doesn't use the term, but somewhere around herd immunity. But if you look at the critical fatality rates, it's even the most conservative ones. I mean, they've changed over time, but I think 1.4%. If you're looking at 60% of people infected, 20 to 60% of people infected to get something that sounds like herd immunity, then you're looking at 50 to 150,000 deaths in somewhere like Australia.
2: Oh, that's correct. Yeah, that would be the case if it just ran rampant. The death rates will be up to the time we get a decent vaccine. I have no real doubt that we can get a decent vaccine, but I think Australia wouldn't see that before the first quarter of 2021 under even the most optimistic predictions. Some other countries might, but we'll just have to see what happens. We don't know, quite frankly. But there's a British vaccine that's already gone into about, I think, five or 600 people in the UK, and basically half of them have got the vaccine, half haven't. They've been put out there in the community where the virus is still transmitting, and we'll see whether they're protected or not, and whether they're safe, if they are protected. So... It's basically, that's how it has to be tested. Once you've tested a vaccine through animals, which is basically uh, some form of animal like a ferret or a hamster or some genetically manipulated mouse strain, you then have to test it in monkeys, uh, m- macaques or African greens in this case. And if that looks safe at that stage and it looks to be effective, then you have to put it into people and you just have to put them out there where the virus is because, you know, you can't challenge them with virus. So there's a risk in it and there's a risk in it for the people who take the vaccine. There's also the possibility they'll be protected early, which would be nice for them.
0: I note the work of Professor Ian Fraser from Queensland University, who was one of the developers of the HPV vaccine. And he was talking about the difficulty for developing vaccines for things like SARS-CoV-2, that it affected the upper respiratory tract. And I think the quote from him was that it would be the equivalent of developing a vaccine for the bacteria on your skin. And I wondered what your thoughts were.
2: Yeah, I know where he's coming from. But basically, we make, they're not great in the elderly and they're not perfect. We make pretty reasonable flu vaccines. And they protect a lot of people and give a good measure of protection. So, no, I think we can make a vaccine against this. Part of the thing, of course, is this isn't a virus like HIV or something like that persists, or like Ian's papillomavirus, for that matter, that he developed his vaccine against. So, basically, even a vaccine that was partially protective, limited transmission by uh, decreasing virus load and caused people not to get seriously ill would be fine. So, there's uh, various ways this could work. I think on the whole that we're probably going to get a pretty good vaccine. Whether it gives sterilising immunity, I'd be a bit doubtful, but I would think that it will be fine and we may need to boost it. If the virus sticks around, people might need an annual shot or something. And if the virus changes, it hasn't yet in any significant way. If the virus changes, we may need to tweak it a bit. I'm fairly confident we'll get a decent vaccine.
1: You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr Mark Haller in conversation with Professor Peter Doherty.
0: I know that there's been a paper released talking about that the predominant variant now in China and Europe and here is the G strain, which is different from the original D strain. And that this surprised the researchers because they felt as though coronavirus has a low mutational change. It's fairly stable and they were surprised to see a mutation so early on. So I was wondering what you thought about that. And also the researchers claim about that the G strain has sort of evolved and become more predominant because it is more infectious.
2: Yes, I know this. uh, It's a preprint actually, which means it hasn't been reviewed properly yet. Yes, Uh, my colleagues who know about this stuff, uh, genomics people, are kind of sceptical and uh, they're not convinced at all. So maybe it'll turn out to be true and maybe not. It comes from a very good person, Betty Corber, who I've known for a long time. But we'll just see how that plays out. At the moment, there's no real suggestion there's any change in virulence or lethality. And, in fact, with a virus like this, you might expect if it does change and it becomes more transmissible, it's probably likely to be less virulent. But we don't know. That's just speculation. But at the moment, that uh, no people in general are not convinced by this.
0: It was released straight online, so it was not peer reviewed. No, it's a preprint.
2: Yeah, a lot of this information is being released as preprints. People want to get our stuff out there quickly so other people can see it, but we shouldn't treat it as quite as valid as something that's been through a proper peer review process, where other scientists have looked at it and said, hey, we can see a problem here, or there's a hole here, or maybe you haven't interpreted this quite right. That's the way science works, but this is a crisis. We're in an emergency situation, so people want to see whatever's out there as soon as possible, because it may influence the way they're thinking.
0: But I was also noted that there were no experiments in the paper to substantiate the claim that it would be more infectious.
2: It's an observational paper, not an experimental paper. And, you know, we don't have that great experimental systems, really. The the various laboratory animal type models are not that susceptible, in fact. And even the monkeys are not as susceptible as they were to, to the original SARS virus, the COVID-1 Yeah. So, you know, the only way you can really look at the virulence of this virus in the end analysis is in what happens with people. And if you started to see a variant coming through in people that were severely sick, we would pick that up. And we're doing a lot of sequencing here. And so anything, in anyone who's really ill will certainly be sequenced. Mm. The viral genome is only 30,000 base pairs, so you can sequence a hell of a lot of these very quickly and we would know pretty fast. And I haven't seen any of that coming through from any of the countries. And I think it would become pretty apparent if that was happening.
0: Does it raise the issue, though, if if it does become confirmed that the virus is going through, well, you could explain the terms antigenic shift, antigenic drift? No, no. There's no
2: evidence so far that it's gone through any changes. We're talking about with antigenic shift and antigenic drift. It's changes in the virus. This comes from the influenza world. And with this virus is totally different from influenza. Firstly, influenza is a smaller virus. It lacks any proofreading mechanism that this virus has. Influenza throws off vastly more mutants than this one does. And it also goes through what we call antigenic shift, where it recombines with another, reassociates with another flu virus to develop a new strain. None of those elements are in this at all. It's not part of the uh, setup. This is a big RNA virus, 30,000 base spheres as against say 13,000 for flu or nine or 10,000 for HIV. So we're not worried about that in a big way, but we'll pick it up if it happens. So at the moment, there's no suggestion that it's changing in the site recognized by antibodies, which are part of the recovery process and would be the basis of a vaccine. There's no suggestion so far that there's any significant change in the antibody binding site.
0: Well, you've talked about monoclonal antibodies as being the future for pandemics, these sorts of things.
2: The monoclonal antibodies, which are a single specificity, normally when you get an antibody response, you're stimulating a whole lot of different clones with slightly different receptors, which Mm. will become the antibodies that will be secreted. So in a monoclonal antibody, what you've done is taken one of those cells, one of those clonal precursors and made an antibody from that. Or you can do this other ways now. You don't necessarily have to have the cells, you can do it by various other mechanisms. But that's an antibody of a single specificity. So it's a very specific reagent. And what you would want to do, for instance, if you were going to treat people with monoclonals, which is a possibility for early treatment, you would firstly have to know they're safe and all the rest, but you'd probably want to use two or three of them so that you didn't select for a mutant or a variant. And I think that would also, of course, be a way of mapping whether any changes in the antigen site that would be equivalent to antigenic drift in a flu virus.
0: Has that been the issue with past vaccines for things like SARS and MERS?
2: No, the issue with SARS and MERS was the issue with both viruses that has worried us is that in both, with some experimental vaccine candidates, but not all by any means, the actual vaccine in monkeys made the disease worse. Now, of course, we don't want that to happen with this one, so that's why the safety aspect is taken very seriously. Now, so far, in the experiments with monkeys that I know about, which are very limited, there's no safety signal so far, but we have to see whether that happens in humans. So that's why we have to go fairly slowly with it. The reason the SARS vaccine didn't go forward was that SARS burnt out. And we got it as far as monkeys. Mm. Now there's, Then there was no SARS around. It just went. And so that wasn't progressed further. In retrospect, it's a pity we didn't take it further because it would have helped the basics for this thing. With MERS, I think the reason it hasn't been taken forward to a human vaccine is the case numbers are too low. I think 2019, about 200 people died of MERS. It's still mm. around, but you don't normally vaccinate against something where the incidence of severe disease is that low.
0: That's the difference with SARS CoV 2. I mean, I think the fatality mm-hmm. rates were much higher for SARS and MERS. I think it was something like 9.6 yeah. and 35%, respectively. But obviously, the fatality rate is lower for SARS CoV 2, but its infectiousness rate is much higher. So, its spread yeah. is obviously. Yeah, great.
2: They all share the feature that they're highly lethal in older people. Mm. The, all three viruses, they're related, but they're not derivatives of each other, if you like. So they're related bat viruses. We're pretty sure of that. So they're all highly lethal than all people. But we don't yet really know the exact incidence of severe disease in a COVID-19. We, we do know the figures for people who get sick. Mm. I mean, you can see that online and, and that's up around 4 or 5%. So that's not great. But we still don't have a really good understanding of background infection rates. There's confusing information out there, both from the PCR test that we use as the gold standard test
0: and from antibody
2: tests. A lot of the antibody tests that are used for screening, as distinct from looking, say, at an infected individual where you're drawing blood and drawing serum, a lot of those antibody tests haven't been working quite as well as we'd hoped. And they're still evolving. We think we're getting there and we'll have good screening tests, but they're not there quite yet. So a lot of the antibody survey results you may read about, we're not sure whether we believe them.
0: Well, I guess the issue, it seems to me, with antigenic shift or drift is that it's the potential for, and for mutation as well, it's the potential for reinfection.
2: I think the discussion of reinfection, there's been a basic confusion with virus persistence and what we're detecting a lot of the time is that the test is extremely sensitive it's 99 percent specific and extremely sensitive the, the standard PCR test which is the test everybody talks about in Australia as the test but it's detecting viral genome not infectious virus and the general pattern is that unless someone gets very sick and this would be older people particularly with defective immune systems the virus is pretty much gone by about 10 days after infection but you can pick up PCR product for much longer. Also, nobody's detected, I think, infectious virus in stool samples and basically just PCR product. And so it says that virus is sticking around at low numbers, but it's not really gonna infect anybody. The only thing that's in a bit of doubt about reinfection is we're not terribly sure about what happens with these asymptomatic people who will test positive. We're not sure how good an immune response they're making. And it's possible they might get some reinfection, but we don't know that. And there's no good evidence for it.
0: Well, it seems another issue is that it depends on the length of time. I don't know enough about this, but it depends on the length of time that you are granted immunity for. So, I mean, you may get the infection and then get the immunity for months, but then what about reinfection a year later?
2: We don't know about a year later, obviously, because it's only been around a few months. And with coronaviruses and with some other respiratory viruses in humans, There is a bit of a pattern, this is mainly in kids, there's a bit of a pattern, not with influenza, but with other respiratory viruses, that kids particularly can get a uh, croup-like virus, what we call a paraflu, in one year and then get it again the next year and then the next year after that, but each time it will be less severe. That could happen with this thing. We don't know. We just don't know enough about immunity to coronaviruses in humans. The reason we've never taken a lot of interest in them is because they don't cause severe disease. So nobody's ever much bothered about them. And so the work's been done on the viruses, but really not a lot on immunity. In fact, pretty much nothing.
1: You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr Mark Haller in conversation with Professor Peter Doherty.
0: I know that there was a criticism from Professor Edward Holmes, who worked on the genetic code of the virus uh, that causes COVID-19, saying that we've had 20 years We've been through SARS, we've been through MERS. So I wondered whether our lack of vaccine was not just that it's really difficult to develop a vaccine for these types of viruses, upper respiratory, but that governments have neglected it and that the funding generally in science is fairly poor.
2: Both with the vaccine and, say, the antibiotic space is a problem. And that is that it's left a lot to commercial companies and they're not going to develop something unless there's a profit motive there. They can't. That's their business. They're in business and they've got to earn money. So it kind of falls between government responsibility and industry responsibility. There's, that's an issue. That's why the Gates Foundation, for instance, is bought into a lot of this. Now with the vaccines, there is an organization called CEPI, CEPI Center Epidemic Preparedness Initiative. Uh, partly funded by Gates, partly by governments, to prepare vaccine platforms. You couldn't prepare the exact vaccine because you didn't know what was going to come down the pike, but you could prepare a platform, a basic strategy, that you could then slot into, say, genetic material from COVID-2. Now, that's what was done. They funded the work that has led to Paul Young's University of Queensland vaccine, the so-called protein clamp vaccine, which is the Australian vaccine that's gone through testing in the Netherlands, I think, in ferrets, and will go into monkeys, I think, about June, sometime like that. I think that's the timeline. And that's being pushed forward by CEPI. We're not pushing it from Australia. It's being pushed by CEPI. And so that was a good initiative. What would have been great, and I did make a bit of noise about it, but not enough, was to have a comparable programme looking at antiviral drugs because antiviral drugs often work across a whole range of viruses. It's possible that if we made a good antiviral drug for SARS, the original one, it might work with this one. would certainly work better, very likely, than anything else that's out there. So we do know that the anti-influenza drugs work right across the influenza viruses. There's a whole range of them, but we don't have them for this virus. And so I wish we'd gone ahead with drug development. And I hope after this, we'll go ahead with a much broader spectrum of drug development against every virus as a potential threat. Now, that will take public and philanthropy funding. Mm. We can't expect the drug companies to do it. It's not going to earn money for them. But it should be done and it can be done.
0: But well, Do you think it has been underfunded up to this point, though, or neglected?
2: Um, sort of. Yeah, it has been neglected in a sense, if you want to put it that way. But I think uh, nobody was expecting this. So, And Eddie's probably right. We should have been expecting it after SARS and MERS, but mm. uh, none of us were geared to it. And so we've been complacent. And, of course, we're human beings, and that's what human beings do. You know, they react to a threat, and then they relax, and it all slips again. Now, we're very good at reacting to acute threats, as we've seen by the response of our government to COVID-19. It's been a very good and very encouraging response. And, you know, we're very bad at reacting to long-term threats like climate change, which is, you know, much more serious than this in the end.
0: Yes. I suppose I thought that if you look at the success rate of NHMRC grants and ARC grants, just generally, they've decreased over the years. So it it probably makes it very hard for a small lab working on something like a bat coronavirus to survive.
2: Well, basically, not a lot of research is done by small labs anymore. I mean, a small lab is eight or ten people. They're not that small. So the research itself has become much more expensive. It's true that the ARC and NHMRC funding hasn't really kept pace the last great advocate we really had for, uh, for medical science in Australia was John Howard, who was helped by Brendan Nelson. And on both sides of politics, we haven't had quite that level of advocacy. Tony Abbott introduced the Medical Research Futures Fund, which has proved to be very useful in some of this. But it would be great if we had more funding across the science spectrum in general in Australia, I think. But, you know, we have to convince government of that and, and money's going to be tight. I mean, it's, it's going to be problematic uh, in the longer term. So I hope they decide that after this experience, keeping science strong is a priority, but, you know, politics is a different area. So uh, so we'll see what happens.
0: Well, there's a lot of factors to this. I know that Edward had, throughout his career, as far as I can tell, called for investigation and closure of these wet markets like the one in Wuhan, where the virus is supposed to have originated from. I know at the moment the Australian government and the US government are calling for an investigation into how China handled the outbreak of the virus, but I know that from a scientific perspective that you need to find out who the intermediary hosts were between the bat and human. And so I wonder whether that happened at this sort of government investigation or whether that involved collaboration between scientists.
2: We need to find that out in the long term. That would be useful. But that would normally come out from the kind of scientific collaboration and basically exchange that we have through science. And and bringing this up as an issue at this time has been a particularly stupid thing to do. Mm -hmm. It was started by Trump, who's trying to attract attention away from his own appalling performance in this. And I have no idea why we bought into it. We shot ourselves in the foot. It's done us damage. We gain nothing by it. I mean, if you really want to get something out of China, you don't walk up to them and poke a stick in their eye. In fact, that doesn't work really well with most situations when you think about it. I think this was not smart and it's cost us and I think we should back away from it as soon as possible. We need to collaborate with China. They've been pretty good, actually, at collaborating and, quite frankly, they let out the virus sequence early. We got what we needed from them in January and I think on the whole, As far as I
0: know, they've been pretty open. I was thinking back to your work in relation to the Spanish influenza. It's interesting to note the differences between that pandemic outbreak and this one, but that it was sort of a founder and a kind of a mother to all of the later pandemic outbreaks, particularly you said it was antigenically similar to the 2009 H1N1 swine flu. And I wondered whether not that I want to create anxiety about it, but whether COVID will sit as some sort of new founder for future smaller, perhaps, pandemic outbreaks?
2: I doubt it very much. I mean, I think the problem with influenza is uh, you've got this segmented genome, you get reassortment, and it goes backwards and forwards very easily between pigs and people, for instance, very easily from chickens to people. We've had a number of these cases, the H5N1 bird flu, H7N9, People have died, but uh, it hasn't changed the transmission of them. So it's some of the 1917, 1918, 19 virus went across into pigs. Maybe it was in pigs first and then came to us. We don't know. But some of those genes that were in the 1918 virus, which were reconstructed a few years back by PCR, uh, we didn't know what the virus was until that was done, but it was a bit of uh, molecular archaeology, if you like. And so some of those genes have uh, been sitting in pigs for decades. And uh, they came out again in the 2009 swine flu. And the nuclear protein, for instance, is almost identical to the 1918 uh, H1N1 flu. But the uh, 2009 wasn't a particularly severe pandemic. In fact, uh, people thought it shouldn't have even been called a pandemic. It was only called a pandemic because of the rules of WHO at that time. And there's other things that have changed since 1918. We can make flu vaccines. Might take us six months, but we can make them. We have flu antivirals, which if you use them early, are good. But the other major thing is that a lot of people in the 1918 experience died from secondary bacterial infections. Mm. So they can be treated with antibiotics. It's always been possible, but I haven't thought we'd have anything quite as bad as 1918. Now, this, of course, is a virgin soil pandemic. We've never seen the virus before. And we really, at this stage, don't quite know how bad it is. We know people are dying. A lot of old people are dying. It's very distressing to watch. But in terms of human numbers and what the eventual toll will be, we don't know. The question of background infection, we'll understand if the virus starts to turn down, if the epidemic suddenly starts to turn down in northern Italy or New York as they relax restrictions, we'll know there's a lot of herd immunity out there. That can be the only explanation. There's a lot of other people who've been infected we don't know about and they're partly at least immune. So we'll have to see. Well, we, it's still early days. I mean, we've only been dealing with this for several months. And look how dramatic it has been so far.
1: You're listening to the Deep Trouble Podcast. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Peter Dowie.
0: The other thing that I was interested in is it seems unlikely that we'll get a really, really effective vaccine first off. I mean, they vary in efficacy as far as I understand The first ones may be only 60, 70%. Then how does it work? I mean, is it a combination of people contracting the virus generally in the community to some extent in a controlled way with a balance of older people taking the vaccine?
2: What I think is likely with the vaccine, I think if the vaccines are giving some measure of protection in humans, which will have to be true before they're put out there in large quantities. I mean, nobody's going to put out a vaccine which is pretty ineffective. 60% immunity wouldn't be bad though because the problem with the vaccine is going to be getting a good response in old people. Old people Mm. don't respond well to vaccines. They don't respond well to the flu vaccine Mm. and the Australian government, for instance, pays for a high test vaccine which has got a lot of protein in it uh, for older people. So it could well be that the vaccines won't be very good in old people. But I would think if you gave them, say, to the 5 to 55-year-olds or 5 to 60-year-olds, if they were say 80% effective in that group, that would greatly increase our herd immunity. There's another possibility too, and that is some vaccines are very easy to produce in large quantity. And these are what we call the RNA vaccines. And if they work at all, it might be a good idea if we had a, a protein vaccine or a virus vector vaccine, which were working moderately well, it might be a good idea to use them as boosters or as initial priming. There's a few strategies out there we could try because you could produce a lot of that stuff very quickly. What we should be doing at the moment is laying in a hell of a big supply of syringes and so forth so we can actually give the vaccine because we're at the end of supply lines and a lot of things. So I think we'll get a vaccination strategy that works. I think we'll have it working pretty well by, um, by certainly a lot of people who've been vaccinated by mid-2021. I'll be very surprised if that's not true.
0: Did we ever develop a vaccine that was effective for SARS and MERS?
2: We could have gone ahead with them, but there was no real point because SARS was gone and MERS just wasn't high enough incidence.
0: I was wondering how you felt the media or even segments of the media had handled the COVID-19 pandemic, whether you felt it was done responsibly.
2: Oh, there's been confusion out there and there have been confusing voices. And in our modern online world, there are networks of crazies. I mean, you know, people worrying about 5G towers and Bill Gates implanting chips in people. I mean, there's all sorts of nuttiness out there. I think on the whole, the media have been okay. I mean, we had an absolutely ridiculous thing in Sydney Telegraph or one of those things. There are not a lot of scientifically literate journalists out there. A lot of the science journalists have gone because the companies can't afford them and there just aren't many of them. The good journalists, they call you up and they ask you and they talk to you and they ask for explanations and they've been fine. And on the whole, I've talked to people from Sky News, The Australian, Sydney Morning Herald and so forth. All the people I've talked to have written reasonable articles and been fine to deal with. I've had no problem with them. There's been a kind of arguments from economists. Uh, some of the right-wing economists are saying that we shouldn't lock yes. it down, that it's not merited. And early on, there was a lot of stuff saying, well, this is no worse than flu. Well, it, it is a lot worse than any flu we normally see. It's horrible disease. And we think it may leave a lot of long-term sequelae in people who don't die from it. We don't know that yet.
0: I think that's an important point. I don't know what you've got to say on that, but I think that we tend to get caught up in critical fatality rates. So, with the seasonal flu, we tend to look at about 0.1%. With this, uh, you know, once you take into account all asymptomatic people with the sample sizes, we've got like things like cruise ships, it's looking at about 1.4%, which is very high. But what people don't talk about is young people who contract it become very ill, and then we don't really know the lifelong effect in terms of morbidity and mortality that has affected in terms of lung function and things like that from having pneumonia? Yes, I,
2: we don't know that and we won't know that for a long time, of course. I mean, you know, I had whooping cough as a kid, for instance, very badly. I think it probably affected my respiratory function for the rest of my life. And it always appalls me when some of the anti-vaxxers won't vaccinate their kids against whooping cough, which is a highly lethal disease, but, you know, all these elements are out there and they're all rattling around and they've got celebrities who know nothing about science but think they speak with authority on anything in there. There's all sorts of craziness. We've got billionaires buying useless drugs and, you know, the, the whole insanity is out there of weirdness. But I wouldn't point a particular finger at the conventional media. I think on the whole they've been pretty good. There's a few things that have been pretty silly, but they've been quite soundly dealt with by people like Media Watch or or the way they've been handled on Twitter feeds or whatever.
0: I've noted for a while that there is a pressure or a synthesis that occurs between the media and between scientific institutions. And this study was pointed out to me by a friend who's a scientist who's currently working on coronavirus but it was with the Monash University and the Doherty Institute papers entitled the FDA approved drug Invermectin inhibits replication of SARS-CoV-2 in vitro by Kali et al. And what they claimed in the paper was that viral replication was shut down somewhere between 24 and 48 hours by about 5,000 times or greater than 5,000 times. And he was talking about the fact that the title was even in of itself was misleading in that it's FDA-approved for nanomolar concentrations and what was used in the paper was at micromolars. And so essentially at that dose, it's sort of super physiological, it probably should shut everything down.
2: Yeah, I mean, the ivermectin the story is very preliminary, to say the least. It's a great drug. I mean, it was developed for heartworm in dogs and it works well there. And it was given by the company Merck Free, treat river blindness in humans where it's a great drug and the guy who did that Campbell won the Nobel Prize and so it was a wonderful thing but I think as far as drug against SARS we we're going to have much better possibilities coming down the pike very quickly we're screening a lot of drugs at the moment that's part of our role we're just talking about how to expand that screening it, there's some candidates that look as though they might have a bit of promise. The next thing is to get them into lab animals and get them tested and see whether they have any effect outside tissue culture. But the ivermectin thing's only been tested in tissue culture. I think we're much, much smarter if we go for, for specific drugs against this virus, That mm-hmm. designer drugs. I mean, you know, HIV, the drugs are all designer drugs. They're designed to fit the molecules of HIV by what we call structural biologists. who so do that using synchroton and so forth. Mark Von Itstein at uh, Griffith University is one of these guys. And that's where we should be going and as fast as possible. I do think we should be pushing drug development as fast as vaccine development, really going for it because with older people, a vaccine may not work. What may work is preventive drugs. that so You could give them a couple of drugs every day as a pill. We do that with HIV. We call it HIV prep. They'd have to be antiviral drugs that work well, and uh, you could do that as preventive and keep them safe. And also people who have defective immune systems or can't respond to a vaccine for whatever reason. So I think we need to push drug development fast. But I'm very sceptical about a lot of these repurposed drugs. At the moment, they're what's being tested, but, you know, because we can, not because they're the optimal.
0: Well, I suppose that if they're already FDA-approved, then you already have some degree of safety. Uh,
2: yes a lot of the safety testing's been done, I don't know about ivermectin, I don't know what level of safety testing's been done in humans, but I'd be very surprised about the answer.
1: You're listening to the Deep Trouble podcast. Dr. Mark Haller in conversation with Professor Peter Dowie
0: when you're talking about vaccines and you're talking about the structure of the virus itself, we talk about glycoproteins and the spike protein. How does all that work in layman's terms, uh, entry into cells and replication?
2: Well, basically the virus binds to the cell. It binds to a molecule on the cell called ACE2. And this particular virus binds very tightly to that. And it binds through what's called the RBD, the receptor binding domain on the spike protein of the virus. You know, you can see it on the pictures of the virus. So the vaccines are kind of directed against that spike protein. All the ones I know about that look to be well ahead are uh, uh, directed either against protein or some sort of genetic delivery system that would make protein, either by just giving the genes themselves or by putting them in a virus vector like ad 5 or something of that sort. So that's basically the strategy. But there are also other strategies out there that would use what was called a VLP, a virus-like particle. This is the strategy that's used in Ian Fraser's human papillomavirus vaccine. We've got one of those vaccines under development at our institute. There are also several others around the country, I think. And they will be the possibilities to test as backup products. We'll certainly take them through small animals to test and we'll see how they go. We don't know. And uh, depending on how the virus-like particle was made, they could have a much broader spectrum of of the virus proteins in them.
0: Yes. I was interested in this because the concentration or the genetic differences between people in terms of their expression of ACE2 in their lungs is to some extent a predictor of whether they're susceptible and fatality rate.
2: That would be logical. And one of the things that was said early on is to give up smoking because it'll upregulate ACE2. I'm not yeah. sure what the status of that is now. I would need to check back on that one. Yeah. But, yeah, ACE2 is... Uh, we would think if you got a higher levels of ACE2 uh, that you would be more susceptible to infection. But, you know, sometimes paradoxical things happen in these infections. But the aim of the vaccine is to block the binding of that receptor to ACE2. One of the receptors for HIV is known, or several of them are known, but if you block one of the main ones uh, due to the genetic absence of that or a mutation in it, they don't get HIV. So, you know... The receptor is a target. So that's the main strategy, and I think that should work, quite frankly,
0: but we'll see. Well, I wonder because I read that the ratio of males to females in one paper that I read, uh, I can send you the references if you like, uh, is uh, 3.25 to 1, and males tend to have higher levels of ACE2. Also, uh, Southeast Asians as well who are more susceptible. And I wonder whether there should be sort of public health warnings to specific populations based on their genetic profile.
2: Yes, we know that men are much more susceptible than women, but we all, we've known for a long time, actually, that women, particularly as they get older, make stronger immune responses than men do. And one of the problems is for women is that they get a lot more autoimmune disease than men do because of that. So it is an issue, and, and it's certainly the case that if you're female, you're much more likely to come out of this alive if you have to go to hospital. But, you know, that's the fact of the matter, and there are various speculations about why that is, including a more powerful immune response than women.
0: Mm. Because sometimes, I guess there are two parts of it in terms of infecting people greater with immunodeficiency, but also some of what causes the damage is sort of a misdirected immune response, an overactive immune response from when you contract the virus.
2: What we think might be happening here is that in people who don't have particularly good immunity, and that what we call specific immunity, that is older people, particularly what we think is the specific immune response is not clearing the virus, the virus persists. And as a result, what we call the innate immune response, which produces a lot of toxic molecules, normally switches on early and can help to hold a pathogen in check until the specific immune response switches on. And we've seen this also with very severe flu that we think that the, the innate immune response is trying to compensate for the lack of the adaptive immune response that's producing all this toxic stuff. And it's that that's contributing to people dying. And there's been trials done of a treatment, which is an approved human treatment, which is a monoclonal antibody to the cytokine interleukin-6, that have suggested, but rather anecdotal evidence so far, that treating with monoclonal antibodies to interleukin-6 can bring people who are very severely ill back out of that stage. Now, there are proper clinical trials going on at the moment, So we should get the answer to that within a a few months, I think. There's also other molecules in that category we could think of. Uh, One is interleukin-1, the other one is is anti-GM-CSF, which was developed at the Hall Institute in Australia. They're all going into trials of various sorts. I think. I know the anti-GM-CSF is in trial. I'm not sure about anti-interleukin-1. But these are all drugs which are approved for human use for something else. So once something's approved for use for something else, you can quickly ask for a compassionate use and uh, use it in, in, say, very sick people with COVID-19. So there's no barrier to using these things. We just need to know that they work.
0: Yes. Well, I know it informed uh, what we understood about Spanish influenza informed The h1n1 swine flu where vaccines they would have been directed towards older people but they actually realized i remember reading your work about this that they realized that older people had been exposed to at least some variant of influenza and therefore they were protected and so the vaccine for h1n1 went to younger people and probably saved lives
2: 2009 when it came back the the reason it looked relatively mild is because People who were alive in 1977 had probably been infected with a similar virus and still were immune, which shows you how long immunity to flu can last for a specific virus. So, uh, yes, we didn't see a lot of deaths in the older group, which is why death rates were down. We did see some of what we saw in 1918. We saw fit young adults dying or in uh, ICU units, particularly fit, uh, heavily pregnant women. And some of them died. About half of them were saved by heart lung machines. Uh, And, of course, that's a very limited resource. We don't have many of those. The best we can hope with COVID-19 is to get onto ventilation at the most. But it's certainly the case that it was much less severe in 2009, probably because older people were partly immune or had relics of immunity.
0: And with SARS-CoV-2, I mean, we look at the children seem to be mostly asymptomatic and that they're much less likely to pass on uh, the virus to adults but there are reports now from the UK and the US of something that looks like a Kawasaki-like uh, syndrome and an immune inflammatory response. Is that something we should be concerned about?
2: Kawasaki is an autoimmune disease of kids which we haven't known the cause. We've long suspected a virus trigger. And there's a hint from New York particularly that the incidence may be up by about twofold, I think, maybe a bit more, I don't know, and that the coronavirus is triggering it. It could be that there are a number of different viruses trigger Kawasaki and coronavirus can do that. Well, we really don't know. I don't think it's an enormous concern. I mean, it's a pretty low incidence. And some young kids have died from a coronavirus, but relatively few. And we're not looking at them as being a major transmitter as the way they are flu. What often brings flu into a household is children from school. Now, we don't have any evidence of that from SARS-CoV-2, and even where schools have opened up, uh, in Denmark, for instance, I think it was, the r naught went up from about 0.6 to 0.8 or something, so it's still less than 1, which is fine. Now, the only thing I wonder about with schools, we talk about schools as though they're homogeneous entities, but mm. you know, we're talking about kids who are 6 years old and kids who are 17 years old, and they're very different, both physiologically and in the way they behave. So I think sometimes we get a bit confused here, but we'll see what happens with the schools. A school had to be shut down in New Zealand, for instance, because of high incidence of infection. A major concern with all this, of course, is that those school kids themselves may not get severely infected, particularly the older ones, is how much they transmitted into the household. But we'll only know when we go ahead with this and we see what happens. And we do a lot of testing, and that will clarify that issue. We have the capacity to do that now.
0: Because we're still not clear around why children seem to be much, much less affected or asymptomatic in most cases.
2: No, I mean, we don't have enough information. And we don't, in general, have enough information about asymptomatics. We need a lot more information on asymptomatic infections. So there are trials set up here, particularly with healthcare workers, where they're being screened very, very regularly. So if they're being screened and they give them permission for multiple samples and everything, the usual conform consent. So if we start to see some asymptomatics in the healthcare workers, we should be able to work that through and really find out what's happening. That's what needs to be done, is to actually follow some asymptomatics through. We do know that symptomatic people, people who definitely get a clinical infection, okay. are making good antibody responses. Okay. I think that's very clear. There's a very recent paper, again, it's a preprint, but it comes from a great lab and the data's very clear that they're making good antibody responses which would be protected. So I'm in no doubt that people who are clinically affected and get over this are going to have decent antibodies.
0: Because that can be used then for what they call passive immunity, which they can, in the first stage, be provided to healthcare workers. So taking the serum from people who've been affected and creating a vaccine from that, essentially. Not a vaccine, but you know what I mean. It's not a
2: vaccine. It's a a preventive or a prophylactic. Mm. It's a therapy. Yeah, so that works already underway here. CSL will do the work. They're the biggest blood products company in the world. They're setting up to take convalescent serum and uh, clean it up and provide it back. I think we may be involved in testing some of it to see whether it's got good antibody levels. We need to test them to see they've got good antibodies. So, so, you know, that product may be available. We don't have an enormous number of convalescents yet in Australia. If it ramps up, we will have a lot more. Other countries are producing this sort of product, but in the face of the pandemics, they're suffering. I don't think they're going to let it out. That's a bit of a problem for us. We're at the end of supply lines. And I think we need to do a bit of rethinking about this after that's so, over. You know, the, the human immune system until recently hasn't been all that well studied. Now we're starting to study it very carefully and very thoroughly. But only really quite recently is because we've got much better tools. And Catherine Kazerska at our institute, for instance, is doing fantastic work. But there's a lot we don't know about the immune system both in adults, but particularly in children and in the elderly. Mm. And we need a hell of a lot more research. It's, it's well worth doing. Mm. And we've been doing it, but it's a way to go.
0: Well, I imagine viruses and pandemics and the immune system, in terms of funding, labs that are uh, working in that area should be assured funding for a very, very long time now.
2: We actually have been very well funded. We've been well funded by the Australian government. And for influenza, in fact, I just came off my very last grant at the age of 79 last year. But Catherine, who's very much out there in the human immunology space, has money from US National Institutes of Health and various other sources. She's extremely well funded and and is a major international player in this. So the money's out there if you're doing the stuff that people want to know about. And there's a lot of stuff that's really important we need to know a lot more about. And a lot of questions are going to be raised by this COVID-19. Yeah. And we'll find out a lot. We'll understand human immunity better after this. Uh, but there's a lot of work to be done.
0: Thank you, Peter. Thank you for your time.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. I hope it goes well.
1: And so there it was... An interview with the man of the moment, Professor Peter Doherty. And Mark, you talk about repurposing drugs that have made the reputation in perhaps other areas. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: When Peter talked about it, we sort of said, well, it kind of makes sense because certain drugs that would have been developed for things like malaria or Ross River fever, It's easier to kind of get those running in preclinical trials, beginning with cellular models, then mice, because they're already FDA approved and we know that they've got safe levels that can be used and they're already readily available. I think Peter's point is that it's unlikely that these drugs will be very effective at all and in fact that they really need to use I think he mentioned the synchrotron, to design drugs specifically for certain sites on the virus itself. I thought one of the interesting parts was his ideas around the inquiry into the Chinese government, which was called upon by Australia. Because now, this week, we've seen a coalition of countries join with Australia calling for the same inquiry, and China has, as far as I'm aware, relented I decided to go along with an inquiry investigation hosted by the World Health Organisation.
1: Well, we could talk a lot about the repercussions of mm. the whole coronavirus saga. and We could talk more specifically about the price Australia's going to pay for poking the Chinese dragon, but that we'll have to save that for another time. We've got to talk about next week's interview, Rachel Menzies, a yeah. young woman with a very unusual interest.
0: Yes, Rachel Menzies is a psychologist with the University of Sydney doing a PhD and her special interest is death.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Very succinct the way you've expressed that. Thank you. In (laughs) particular, let us say that she's interested in death anxiety. Her work doesn't focus on people who are just fearful of death. It's when it has clinical symptoms associated with the anxiety, isn't it? Like, I'm very careful when I cross the road. Yes. That's a bit different to people who exhibit extreme behaviours because of their fear of death.
0: Well, if you develop some sort of ritual that had to occur every time you cross the road and you believe that if you didn't perform that ritual that it would end badly, then we might start to be getting into the realms of psychopathology.
1: Well, I do have rituals. I (laughs) do have have very I look to the left, I look to the right, and I look to the left again.
0: Yes, yes. Functional (laughs) ones, though, I think, by the sounds of things, not ones that are disconnected from the actual procedure and the danger of the procedure itself.
1: All right. Join us here on 94.9 Main FM next week, same time, same channel, for another episode in the third series of Deep Trouble. Mm.
0: Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Main FM, Castle, Maine. Trouble magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support.